Okay, so this is an interesting story we're in as we get to Genesis chapter 26. Mainly, if you've been with us for some of our study in Genesis, this is going to feel like a bit of a rerun, okay? Uh, if, I imagine this idea, if you were the Israelites sitting down, because often there's times in Israel's history where they would just sit and listen to the entire like Old Testament be read, and especially the Torah, this was the first five books of the Bible, if you heard this story, like your brain, your head would kind of tilt and you'd go, didn't I hear this one before? Um, to use a, a very great, uh, to use uh, an example that's timely, uh, there are, let me cite two of my favorite movie, uh, two of the best movies ever made, we'll just call them. This is, let's just talk in hyperbole. Um, uh, it's two, two cinematic classics, uh, the cinematic classics Point Break and Fast and the Furious. Um, if you've seen either of these, if you've seen both of these movies, what you realize is that they're exactly the same plot with a few names changed, and they switch the idea of going, of a, basically the plot is a cop goes undercover to find a group of robbers who are involved with, in one case, illegal street racing, and in the other case, surfing, and in the, in the process of going undercover, he, he, he develops this close friendship with the leader of the gang, and at the end, spoilers for movies 20 plus years old, he lets the guy go, okay? But they came up like six years apart, so I wonder who one day, like someone was sitting there trying to write a script, and they were like, okay, we need a plot. And they were like, okay, this one, erase the names, change the hobby, roll, let's go, Okay? This is the idea when we read the story of Genesis chapter 26. Basically, it almost looks beat for beat like two stories that happened in Abraham's life before him. Genesis chapter 12 and especially Genesis chapter 20 through 21. Let me give you a quick recap of Genesis 20 through 21 in case you weren't with us. Basically, here's some highlights. Abraham journeys to the land of the Philistines in Gerar. Here, God appears to him and promises to bless him. Now, when he, he arrives, afraid that they might kill him because his wife was so pretty, basically Abraham convinces his wife Sarah to say that she is his sister. Now, Abraham is caught in this lie and as a result is sent away. Uh, during this time, he travels around and he arrives in the land that will become known as Beersheba. He prospers, he does well, and at the end of the story, um, the king of the Philistines, Abimelech, and his commander, Phicol, uh, the commander of his army, come and they offer to make a covenant with Abraham. Abraham ex accepts the covenant, which is basically like a, like a contract or a treaty, and they basically accept and the two form a treaty. Today's story is, is pretty similar. Basically... Isaac journeys to the land of the Philistines in Gerar, where he meets, uh, where he said, he, he, when he arrives, he gets afraid and he says, just say you're my sister to his wife because he thinks they're going to kill him and take her. And then he's caught in the lie, goes to the land of Beersheba and Phicol, the commander of the army and Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, uh, come out and make a treaty with him. It's the same story. It's a rerun essentially. So here's my question is, why on earth does the, does the book of Genesis have three reruns in it, essentially? Why does it do that? Now, in order to understand that, what you have to understand is that the Bible doesn't repeat things on accident. 
It wasn't like Moses, when he was writing this story down, said, Ah, I need a good story. I need a good story. Four chapters ago, I had this story about a guy who lied and said his wife was his sister. Uh, how about another story about a guy whose wife lied and said his wife was his sister? That's not how that works. So the fact that this is a reoccurring theme in these people's lives tells us something. See, repetition in the Bible is used for emphasis. And so there's something very important that God wants us to understand through this story, and that's why he included it. So I want to ask the question, why is this story about a man lying about his spouse and then making a covenant with the king of the Philistines so important that it, re- it occurs multiple times in the same book of the Bible? Uh, what I want to do is look at and use, basically I want to look at this story, since we know the beats, I just explained to you twice, this is the story beats of the story. What I want to do is look at some themes that emerge in this story. How they relate to the original audience, the people of Israel coming out of slavery into the promised land, and how they relate to you and me. So if you're taking notes, by the way, I have four themes that I want to point out from this passage this morning. If you're a note takers, by the way, there's a paper back there and pens. If you, if you need to take notes, there's masks and sanitizers. Feel free to help yourself to those things. Uh, if you're taking notes, here are the four themes. I'll give them to you right out of the gate. Those four themes are fear, faithfulness, foolishness, and grace. If you thought the fourth one was going to be another word that starts with F, congratulations, you grew up in a Baptist church. A lot of alliteration in Baptist churches. So, fear, faithfulness, foolishness, and grace. So if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 26, starting in verse 1. Um, Basically, I'll give you some of the, I'm going to give you the story overall, and I'm going to highlight a few passages as we walk through this. So we read that a famine hits the land, which leads Isaac, the son of Abraham, to venture into the land of Egypt. He says, I'm going to go to Egypt. I've said this before. Why did they go to Egypt during a famine? Real simple reason. The Nile River. The Nile River would have allowed them to have more, uh, be um, more fruitful and productive during times uh, of famine. So when a famine hit the land, people tried, tended to, to um, go towards Egypt. However... God stops Isaac from doing this, and he says, instead, go to the land of Gerar. Like I said, if you're, the, if you're the original audience hearing this, the fact that this story rings true to what they've already heard perks their ears up. Here, the Lord also renews with Isaac the promises he made to Abraham a, gen- a generation before. In verse 2, chapter 26, verse 2, we read, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Our first thing we encounter here is fear. So, as we proceed in this story, Isaac enters the land and, ta- and like I said, he takes notice that he looks at Rebecca and he goes, You're too pretty, uh, which apparently was just bad news for people. Apparently, this was like a thing that must have been common in this day and age because this is literally like Abraham was worried on two different occasions of this. Isaac is worried about this. Apparently, killing the husband and taking his wife was a common worry at this point in time. So we read of Isaac in verse 7. 
that when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Why? For he, he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of that place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. So fear is his motivation. Fear is a powerful tool. Fear is, as a matter of fact, a driving force in how we live our lives. Fear motivates our actions, and in many ways, in ways both big and small. But fear also gets a bad rap. Sometimes we use the, phrase, the, the words fear and cowardly synonymously. That's not always the case. Some fears are rational. Take, for example, wearing your seatbelt. You get into your car with you, maybe your family, and because out of an understanding of fear of the fact that some nutcase out there might be driving like an idiot, you seatbelt your kids in and hopefully seatbelt yourself in, right? Now, fear's the motivation there, right? It's the fear of an auto accident. But it's not evil or cowardly to fear in that sense. You don't see people driving down the street and uh, wearing their seatbelts and yell, cowards. That's a rational, wise fear that dictates a part of our lives. Now, some fears are irrational. Let me give you an example. At our house, my wife will not eat raw cookie dough out of, out of the bowl because she's afraid of what will happen. To me, that's a cowardly fear, and I will not do that. <laughs> I, will wa- I walk the line on that one, okay? But when the Bible talks about these things, he's not talking, the Bible's not talking about these little f fears, okay? The Bible deals with major, big, ultimate fears, capital F fears, that it, when it talks about fear. See, these aren't fears that control a single decision, like whether or not you wear a seatbelt, whether or not you eat raw cookie dough. Rather, these are fears that dictate all your decisions. They are fears that control everything and every aspect of your life. This sort of fear is what motivates Isaac to lie about his wife, okay? And God is already, one of the things though, one of the things that makes this cowardly here, this type of fear, is that God has already promised to protect Isaac. Going back to verse 3, he says, I will be with you. Now, that phrase there, I will be with you, isn't just, it's not just like saying, hey, I'm hanging out, I'm around here. Instead, what it is, is God being with his people is the basis for, for which they are not to fear their enemies. Often, Israel is told to go up against an army, and God gives the promise, I will be with you. In other words, I will look after you, I will protect you, I will give you the victory in all of this, okay? His presence is the assurance of their protection. He would later give a... So, he, God, like I said, uh, the first five books of the Bible are the books of Moses, the Torah, all have a common author. And so we find this theme of God being with them over and over again. For example, a similar statement is given to the Israelites, the, the original audience here, when entering the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, we read, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. See, notice that the solution for fear here is God's presence. The fact that he goes out with them. Uh, the idea there is, the illustration is the idea of, Armies marching out to battle, and the Lord himself marches out to battle 
with them. That's the idea that comes with it when we say that he will be with them. This is a powerful thing. It's more than just saying God is hanging out with you, so to speak. God, however, doesn't only say do not fear. And this is important. See, it's not just don't fear and the solution is, well, don't fear. Rather, what the Bible does is something unique. See, God doesn't simply tell us not to fear. He actually redirects our fear. He tells us what or whom to fear. Let me give you an example also from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. See, this concept of the fear of the Lord shows up throughout the entire Bible, guys. What's the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is basically a recogn- the natural recognition and respect for who God is and what he is capable of doing. It's the idea of understanding certain things. People have given different illustrations. It's when you see a, if you were, it's when you see a river with crazy waves and you realize uh, when the current's super strong and you realize, I'm not just going to walk out here haphazardly because you understand the power that is in that water. It's when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon looking out of it and you realize, I'm not just going to hop down this thing because I realize the greatness and the depth of this thing. That is a healthy, holy fear, okay? But now, notice what the fear of the Lord is meant to do here. It's not just wait, it's not, uh, the, the fear of the Lord isn't meant to make, keep you from doing anything. Some, usually fear uh, paralyzes us. The fear of the Lord is not like that in what it does. Rather, the fear of the Lord is meant to motivate us. Uh, we see here that it's meant to motivate us to love and to obedience. This is the kind of fear that isn't meant to also drive us away from God. Rather, it's the kind of fear that is meant to drive us towards him. See, the promise of the scripture, the good news of the Bible, is that this God who is, who is above all else the only thing that we should truly fear, ultimately, is the God who goes with us. We are called to fear the Lord because he is the sovereign over all, and because of, what we, because of that, we need not fear any, anything else. We need not fear other men. In this sense, the fear of the Lord is a unique fear, in that instead of making us cowardly, it makes us courageous. If we fear God, we need not fear anyone else. Which brings us to our next theme, faithfulness. So, After this whole sister-wife debacle, Isaac is sent away. He travels through the land, digging up wells where basically Abraham had dug before. And when Abraham died, the locals basically filled in the wells. Uh, This is their way of saying, we don't take kindly to to you folks here. The locals don't take kindly to him, which forces Isaac to keep traveling. Eventually, he he reaches a peaceful spot, digs a well, which he names Rehoboth meaning broad land. Why? Because verse 22 tells us, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. 
From there, he traveled, realizing that this is the place God has led him to, that he's going to prosper him in. He kind of sticks around this area. From there, he travels to Beersheba, the land which had been given to his father Abraham before, where once again God appears to Isaac. Here we read in verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. What I want to do, guys, is draw your attention to a specific phrase here. The phrase, I am the God of Abraham, your father. This is a way of showing God's promises to Abraham extended to Isaac as well. And they had not changed from one generation to the next. What God promised he would do, he will faithfully do. See, in fe- in the fear of the- if the fear of the Lord gives us courage, here we see that the faithfulness of the Lord gives us confidence. It reminds us that he will not turn his back on us. Now imagine that. Imagine you were an Israelite. For 400 years, your people have been enslaved in the land of Egypt. What's the thought? God doesn't care about us. Maybe God forgot us. This is a strong, this is a staunch reminder that not only has God not forgotten them, but he loves them, he cares for them, and he keeps his promises to them. He promises to be faithful. He promises to go with them, with them and he promises to bless them as they, because he has made a promise, a covenant with their forefather, Abraham. And that's what we see here in Isaac. But this goes beyond this. It goes beyond just those Israelites. It goes to you and me. So the Apostle Paul wrote to his understudy Timothy these words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. He says, This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, that is Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, scholars and historians believe this is actually like an early type of creed, like a pledge that, they, that the early church would recite frequently together. The early church knew that they needed to remind themselves, God is faithful. He has not changed his plans. He has not changed his affections towards you. They need, they rem, this reminded themselves that their confidence also didn't rest in themselves, but rather in the God who always keeps his promise. And the same God who kept his faithfulness with Jacob is the same God who will keep his promises to you and me. That's good news. Now, so, that's also good news to know, because the third theme in this passage is foolishness. So, this one's a little harder to see, but I'll point it out to you. Seeing that God had prospered Isaac, Abimelech, who was the king of the Philistines, it could have been the same Abimelech, or more than likely than not, it was like his son who took his same name. So, King Abimelech Jr. sends sends men out to make a covenant, a treaty, basically, with Isaac. We read in chapter 6, Back to 26, uh, verse 28, it says, They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us. 
Between you and us, let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and they drank. In the morning, they rose early and exchanged oats. So where's the foolishness here? Well, how is this disobedience? Well, this goes back to the Israelites and their law. See, the Israelite people were forbidden from making covenants with the surrounding nations. Uh, Moses wrote this in Exodus chapter 23. He said, Little by little I will drive them out, that is the surrounding nations in the promised land, before you until you have increased and possessed the land. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, and I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Why? Verse 32, you, may, you, make, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. Why? It says, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So why was Israel as a nation forbidden from making covenants with the surrounding nations? Simple. It would be a trap for them. It would lead them to serve their false gods and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Keep in mind, this is one of those sins, guys, that's not immediately, that doesn't look bad on the surface, right? We see this and we go, peace, it's a treaty, that's a good thing, right? We want peace, we like peace. This seems like a good thing that we should all celebrate. It looks good at first. However, in truth, it's really rooted in fearing the nations rather than the Lord. The idea is Abimelech, the Philistines needed to protect them. God wouldn't protect Isaac. See, you make a treaty with people because you want to keep the peace. But in this situation, God is telling the people, just trust me. I will protect you. You don't need their protection. You don't need to, you don't need to compromise your beliefs. I will be with you. I will protect you. This, there was, however, one form of... So they were forbidden from making a covenant with the other nations. There was one ground for which they were, however allowed to make a covenant. We read about this in Exodus chapter 22, verse 48. It says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. Okay. This was the acceptable form of covenant with their neighbors. Basically, in order for their neighbors to, uh, to go, the only acceptable covenant was that their neighbors would worship the Lord their God and become like them. At which point, they would no longer be treated as outsiders. They'd be welcomed in as family. This was relevant to the Israelites, and it's also relevant to you and me today. We don't compromise our beliefs. We just don't. Why? Because we didn't make them up. They're not our preferences. They're God's word. He delivered them, and he will protect us he will look out, out for us. Rather, the nations are su- to submit to our Lord, Jesus Christ, worship and serve him and to embrace them. And as a result, we are to embrace them as our brothers and sisters. Guys, we all come to faith on the same terms. Complete and absolute surrender to Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's the laying down of ourself, all for his sake, his glory, so that we might be the recipients of his mercy. 
And this, I worry, is often lost by us. Sometimes we wrongly assume that we must become more like the unbelieving world around us in an attempt to reach them. This takes a lot of different forms. Maybe it's thinking, I got to look cooler so that people will want to come, so that people will want to know my God. Maybe it's thinking we've got to offer someone, some, someone something that they want, and then we've got to slide the gospel in there, like, a little, like we're smugglers. Guys, here's the honest truth. The best thing we could ever offer the world, we, are offering, we offer them all the time. Repent, submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and receive eternal life. I got nothing better for that to offer you, Okay? So, I think when we think this way, we are woefully mistaken. See, God calls us to go and make disciples of the nations. And we do so, or as we do so, we aim to become more like Jesus. That's how we conquer. But also, that's how we receive more brothers and sisters into our midst. We submit to Christ as his disciples and we show others how to make disciples as well, how to walk with Jesus. This brings us to the fourth theme, grace. Now, you might not catch this at first in this passage, but it's there, tucked away ever so slightly. Go back to verse 3. God promises to Isaac, he says, I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Now, this may seem like a really really simplistic, nerdy, English teacher kind of thing. But we notice here is that God doesn't make the promise to Abraham and his children and his children's children and his children's children. He makes it to Abraham plus one, plus an offspring, right? And see, the word for offspring here is singular, a point that the New Testament authors drive out, that it's not offsprings, it's offspring. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, meaning many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. See, this is the guarantee which was made to Abraham and also made to Isaac. God would bless them along with their offspring. The question is, which offspring, right? And the answer we receive is Jesus. This is why God shows grace to Isaac often, despite his own faithlessness or unfaithfulness. It's because the security of the blessing doesn't rest in Isaac. It rests in Jesus and his faithfulness. Paul also writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. What he's saying there is that if you think you've done a good job obeying the law, you're either going to live or die by the truth of that statement. See, but the thing is, we tend to, curve, we think, we tend to think God grades on like a certain curve, like a teacher, who takes your C-plus test and makes it an A-minus or something. That's not how it works. God demands perfect righteousness. So he says, verse 13, Christ 
redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish world, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. What's he saying here? Well, notice that the, the Jesus, the blessing through Jesus, the blessing of Abraham is not restricted simply to the people of physical Israel, but rather to uh, it is open to humanity, all of humanity as well, including the Gentiles. The promise God gives to Isaac is more than just land or property. Also, he's not just talking about this land of Gerar here. Rather, it's the it's God, the Spirit Himself, God Himself who is with us, that God is promising. In other words. God gives him his very self, his very person, the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he brings counsel, comfort, and conviction into our life. He, te- he, 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 he counsels us when we need wisdom. He comforts us when we are broken. And he convicts us when we are in the wrong. So, let's bring it all together. What's the big idea for this week, guys? It's this. God is faithful. And so we need we do not need to fear. God is faithful, and so we do not need to fear. See, what the Lord is calling Isaac to do is essentially what he is always calling us to do, to trust him and to follow him, to live within this relationship with him. He knows what he's doing. He's in control of everything, so don't be afraid. So here's a question I want you to consider this morning. What are you afraid of? Not just like spiders or something. What are you really afraid of? Basically, I think you can break down your big ultimate fears into a few categories. Fear of not having something. It could be a fear of not having enough money. Fear of knowing how the bills are going to be paid. Fear of where you're going to live. Or it could be something more personal like the fear of being alone. That's one type of big fear. How about fear of insignificance? This is the fear that what I am doing in life really doesn't matter. We want what we do to matter in life. And when we think we're just just spinning our wheels, we feel hopeless. How about fear of the uncertain? This is the basic idea that I don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. And if you're like me, I'll be honest, guys, this is where I struggle a lot of times. My go-to reaction is that what I don't know is going to be a crisis. I tend to think, when I don't know the details, I tend to expect the worst. For whatever reason, I'm always doing damage control, even when crises haven't happened yet. Maybe you're like me as well. Fear controls us, and that's why we're called to fear the Lord, because by fearing Him, we are called to fear Him only. By fearing the Lord, we take fear off of things that cannot protect us, that will not do us any good, and put it on the one person who can actually make a difference. Why? But he's the only one who can actually solve our fears. God promises to always provide what we need. See, here's the beautiful thing. All these big fears I just mentioned, God promises to handle them all. God promises to always provide what you need, even in the loneliness aspect. The church is meant to function like an extended family. We come along each other, aside each other. You want, you want to talk significance? You are assured that you are part of something bigger than yourself by following Jesus. You are part of God's global mission to make disciples 
of every tribe, tongue, and nation. How about uncertainty? God says you can cast all your worries, all your anxieties on him because he cares for us. Why? That's who God is. See, in the end, maybe that's why nothing else deserves your fear. Because nothing else can actually provide and protect you like God can. He cares deeply for you. He provides grace and provision for you. And he gave his son to secure a blessing for you. Look, guys, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's not. And I'll be honest with you, your fears are going to come back all the time. It's a battle, and the enemy doesn't go down easily. But we aren't without weapons for this fight. God himself says he goes out to battle with you. And he supplies what you need to overcome these fears. So, real quick thing to consider. What are some of the tools God's given us? What do we do in the face of these fears? Well, you trust God's promises. See, the problem isn't that God hasn't promised to take care of our worries and anxieties and our fears. The problem is that we don't know the promises because we don't spend any time in his word. It's not that he hasn't answered the question. It's that we haven't sought the answer. So dig deep, guys. Commit that word, that Bible to memory. Then keep his commands. See, God doesn't just give up, give give us promises. He does give us those, but he gives us more than that. He gives us commands. He gives us precepts. He gives us wisdom. He gives us things to follow to also direct us in life. So as you take in what his word says, Along the way, what you also feel is challenged at points, convicted, and that's part of what the Bible was made to do. With this, he also gives us correction, however. He sets us straight when we're, in the, when we're on, the, on the wrong path. He shows us how to move past our fears and our failures. And then know that he is always with you. The greatest weapon God gives us in this battle is always himself. You can bring everything before him, every fear every anxiety, because he cares. So pray. Pray often. Ask other believers for advice when you need wisdom as well, because these are all tools God has given you to fight your fears and to live victoriously in him. See, here's the confidence we have ultimately, guys. God wins the battle. How do I know? I've read the book. (laughs) It's in there, I promise. Spoilers. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they don't even stand a chance. Uh, There's this beautiful thing the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 16. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that because there's such a dichotomy there. See, I love that crushing things is not how we tend to think of peace. But it's how God establishes peace. God crushes our enemies. All his, or rather, he crushes his enemies. All his enemies will be crushed, but those who trust in him will receive his peace. That's the God we worship. Bow your heads, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, and we praise you, and we trust in you. God, you are faithful. You go out with us. You give us your Holy Spirit to convict and to comfort us. You give us confidence through your faithfulness and through your promises. God, let us cast every anxious fear upon you.
knowing that you are trustworthy, knowing that with you we have nothing else to fear. God, as we sing these songs, as we take the Lord's Supper, give us courage to declare your name this morning. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.